Good morning. Welcome into In Focus on News Radio KMAN. And today we're going to be talking with our uh, guests from the National Bio and Agri Defense Facility, otherwise known as NBAF. We've got three guests joining us. Uh, NBAF Deputy Director Dr. Ken Burton is here. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Brandon. How are you this morning? I'm doing all right. Appreciate it. Katie Pulaski, NBAF Communications Director, also joining us here on the program. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Brandon. Thank you again for having us as usual. You're welcome. And uh, this month, we'll be also chatting with our special guest today, and that's Dr. Maggie Benke, NBAF Attending Veterinarian and Animal Resource Unit Lead. Welcome. Good morning, Brandon. Great to be back. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We get these updates from NBAF uh, once a month, and we'll hear from uh, Dr. Burton and Katie here a little bit later on, but we're going to start here in this first segment. Uh, talk to Dr. Benke. It's, uh, it's been a while since we last had you on the show. Can you remind our listeners uh, the Animal Resource Unit's main responsibilities? Sure thing. So NBAP's Animal Resource Unit, uh, we're responsible for meeting the needs of all of the variety of research animals that we will work with at NBAP. So I'm sure our listeners already understand and know that we're going to have livestock um, at NBAP, but we also have other more traditional lab animals like mice. And, you know, each species comes with its own uh, special needs, uh, needs for care, needs for attention, and our responsibility is to be there for them, you know, 365 days per year. Um, And so we've got this team of animal care professionals and veterinarians, and we're going to monitor and oversee every single thing involving animals, um, from identifying a healthy source of where to get the animals to bringing them onto the site. And also, of course, ensuring they have all the care they need. And, Brandon, that's not just cleaning and feeding, you know, basic needs, but we also have to really make sure that they have a safe and comfortable living environment and also give them those opportunities to express uh, species-typical behaviors. So we want the cattle to be able to act like cattle and the the pigs to be able to act like pigs. Um, And uh, animal welfare, of course, is is a main priority for NBAS. Uh, we want to show exemplary animal welfare care and, and human and animal safety. We don't just want to meet minimums. We want to be the industry example. Um, and it's our passion. We have caretakers and technicians who are animal lovers. These are folks that live and breathe, you know, livestock. They love they love the animals they work with. Um, and so they care with these animals, uh, care for these animals with tons of awareness and dedication and understanding about what the animals need as well as understanding the important purpose for these animals. Um, and, and it's really important to get that across, that without research animals, NDAF could not promote the next generation of vaccines, preventatives, and cures for the diseases that affect our food supply for our nation. And so in order to do that well, there has to be quality support for the animals um, and their welfare. So uh, we've got folks comprehensively trained on animal care, signs of disease, signs of pain, and, and all of their aspects. Um, surrounding things that uh, will occur at NBAP. And uh, we work really closely with uh, a lot of other groups. So um, hopefully you'll get a chance to talk to some of them coming up here. But uh, some of our safety groups, like bio-risk management, security, safety, health, and environmental management. And um, we make sure that all of our processes are in line with what they want us um, to do for those, um, uh, you know, the the most stringent biosafety and biosecurity protocols that, that we have. Gotcha. All right. Well, as the facility prepares for the science side of things, uh, what have you and your unit been up to these past two years? Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been that long. Um, We've had to get a little bit creative, uh, you know, with COVID, with not having our own uh, site and being ready to go. 
so over the last two years, we've spent most of our time training. Um, like I said, we've got this really talented, enthusiastic group of, of animal experts. you got to keep these, these folks busy and ready and, you know, with the eye on the mission. So we've definitely been preparing um, by training a lot. Um, and so to get creative with it, we kind of had to figure out some novel approaches um, to figuring out, okay, where are we going to train? What are we going to do for this time where, uh, where, where we're not in the facility yet? So one of the things we're doing is utilizing the uh, Kansas State University's Vet School's Clinical Skills Lab, which is just a beautiful modern space that the vet school has done wonders with simulators and inanimate models that allow our folks to train in kind of a low-stress, low-risk environment, um, you know, practicing and, and mastering a skill before they perform it with live animals. So one example is we have... Uh, some little mouse simulators, and if you um, can handle one of those and, you know, demonstrate the way that those work, you can actually do injections on them. That makes you more confident, and um, and it's safer for you to do that with a, a live mouse. So we, we do that during the summer when that lab is not occupied with students. And then we also train with another local institution, uh, Veterinary and Biomedical Research Center, in more traditional ways to practice hands-on skills. And so it's really great to have these local resources um, available to us, and, and it's a really nice collaborative environment with both of those um, institutions. And then, of course, um, here at MBAP, we've got to uh, work on and continue to, to uh, get our Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee, or our IACUC, um, all ready to go. All right. And speaking of IACUC, who serves on that, and what are their responsibilities? Yeah, so... The, the committee um, is appointed locally, and it's a group of scientists, veterinarians, uh, health and safety experts, and then there's also non-science and local community members required to review every research project um, involving animals for compliance, animal welfare considerations, and safety considerations for staff. So they're, they're looking at oversight and inter internal peer review and, you know, community peer review for compliance with uh, with animal welfare guidance. And, you know, I want to emphasize that local piece because we really do have folks with a local, you know, a, a, a stake in the community, not just a stake in NBAS, um, that, that serve on that committee, and that's really important for us. Um, and it's important for the public to understand that no work at all would be done with live animals at NBAS without prior approval from this group. So this group sits down, reviews everything that's going to happen, and then it doesn't go through without their approval. Gotcha. Okay. Is that a is that a big committee? What's the, what are we talking about numbers wise? Yeah. So you want to you want to have a big enough committee. Um, there's minimums um, in the in the uh, regulations of five members, and we have close to fifteen or sixteen right now. I think it fluctuates a little bit based on uh, people coming and going. Um, but yeah, so we'll have. Um, Whenever you have to do official business, you need a quorum of that group. So, you know, if we have 15, we'll make sure that eight people are there before we vote on anything. Um, and, yeah, it's a really good mix of uh, scientists from all of the different units at MBAS, um, you know, as well as I said, those local folks. And then you're also required to have a non-scientific member on your IACUC, um, somebody whose focus is, is outside of kind of animal research and all that. And at MBAF, we have our community or, or that non-scientific member in our communications team. So I think that's really important, too, to have that bridge between communications um, with the public and, you know, the heart of what we're doing um, in the IACA. Yeah, we're speaking with Dr. Banky here, NBAF Attending Veterinarian and Animal Resource Unit Lead. Uh, what are some examples of particular animal welfare practices that will be incorporated at NBAF? 
Um, so we are so excited about this aspect of our program. Um, good animal welfare is, is just simply the right thing to do. And um, starting a program from scratch and having the support to incorporate all of the best practices in animal handling from the very beginning is just, it's a dream come true for, you know, veterinarians that work in this field. So, um, you know, some some examples are uh, incorporating positive reinforcement and uh, conditioning uh, to allow animals to participate in their care tasks such as if we need to weigh pigs, uh, we'll likely train them uh, to walk onto the scale voluntarily. Of course, you know, treats are a great reward. You can probably get a pig to follow, you know, a marshmallow onto a, onto a scale. Or just standing still for exams. So you might have seen something like that before. Um, it's widely used in zoos and, and some research institutions. Um, but sometimes, because of the time it takes and the skill level, um, that can be compromised in programs, but that's that's not the case at MBAC. We have so much support to make this work. Um, you know, our scientists and our leadership really get it. They understand that it's not just the right thing to do, but, um, you know, that the animals are going to be less stressed if they know what to expect. Um, and we know that less stress equals better welfare. Um, another example is gentle handling of rodents, and that's kind of, more recently gotten some attention in the lab animal world, but in, in all possible cases, that's what we're going to do. So it's updated gentle handling and a restraint of mice and rodents to avoid distress. So um, that would be like scooping mice into a cup or letting them run into a familiar tube to move into their clean home, uh, which is an improvement on, you know, previous standards from decades before where you just simply lifted them up by hand. Um, and so another important component and popular component of our work um, for the care team and for the vets, because you can be kind of creative and have fun with it, is the animal enrichment program. So our team of uh, caretakers and technicians have created, well, they've really led this, this charge of creating a really robust plan to allow animals opportunities for variety in their day and for choices in their environment. So for a lot of our animals, that would be like toys or novel food items. Um, we'll maybe provide scratching posts for the cattle, um, like you would see at some farms and stuff. Um, we'll groom the animals that, that, that respond well to that. Um, and that's kind of the bulk of our program, really taking into account what that animal wants to be doing and things that that particular species would like. Um, and, of course, swine, you know, that's usually food treats or fits of juice or tang or something like that. As far as uh, animals you'll have at NBAF, what animals will you have and where will you get them from? That is a great question. Um, folks are, are usually very curious about that. So in all possible cases, oh, well, let me go back to your first part of your question. So we'll definitely have swine, cattle, small ruminants, um, and then some smaller numbers of the other species like mice and rabbits, um, smaller numbers of horses potentially uh, depending on what the mission, um, you know, what we're looking at and what diseases and what vaccines we need, um, you base that on, um, you know, you base the animals on, on what the needs are for that mission. And so for us, mostly it's livestock. Um, and in all cases, um, we just don't kind of drive down the road and, and pick up animals. That That's not at all what happens. Um, we include animals from specific pathogen-free herds. Um, and that means that we get to dictate the diseases or vaccines that they have had since birth um, in many cases. And herds that have high health and high biosecurity standards. Um, and in the large majority of cases, they're also specifically bred just for research purposes. So 
So all of the animals that we get are going to be confirmed healthy and fit to be included on a project before beginning any research. Um, everyone gets a, a good look over, a good exam, make sure everybody's healthy, make sure um, there's uh, no obvious signs of disease. Uh, and sometimes that even includes uh, pre-blood work before we get the animals to our site, things like that. So these are the highest health animals that um, that we can find and purchase so that um, there, we don't create variabilities in, uh, in the science and, and diseases that we're trying to study and provide uh, vaccines and cures for. Well, Dr. Banky, I know it'll be a couple of years before NBAF will be fully operational, but when will animals be moved into the facility? We would love to have animals in just as soon as we can. We have to be ready to get these animals. Um, we'll be ready to receive animals later this year for sure. Um, as soon as we can, Animal Resource Unit is just like, yes, yeah, bring us animals. Um, let's, let's get moving here. Um, but before any animals that hoof into the facility, we have a lot of work to do with, um, you know, that IAC committee. They've got to visit and approve all of the spaces. So it's not only just the projects, um, but they actually walk around and look at all the spaces in the rooms and look at our feed and bedding um, and then review all the programs we've built. So they'll sit down with our enrichment program and look through that. Uh, they'll look at all of our plans for receiving animals, um, for examining animals. Um, and so we cannot move any animal sand bath until that committee is satisfied and approves it. And then we also have others. Uh, we're going to invite some other outside inspectors like ACES Animal Care. Um, that's another branch of USDA um, to, to look at us, uh, look at our program and make sure that um, they're satisfied and happy with our space too before we bring animals in. So maybe you can you can pink in on on when that'll be, but <laughs> as soon as we can, we are we're going to be ready to get those animals. Okay, sounds good. Well, uh, Dr. Banky, thank you, and uh, we're going to pause here, take a break, and then we'll hear from uh, Dr. Burton and uh, Katie Pulaski on some other updates, including construction and uh, when commissioning is going to be finishing up. We'll talk about that here in the next segment here on News Radio KMAN. All right, we're back here on In Focus News Radio KMAN, getting our monthly update from. Uh, the National Bio and Agri-Defense Facility, uh, otherwise known as NBAF. We've got uh, Dr. Ken Burton, NBAF Deputy Director, Katie Pulaski, NBAF Communications Director, joining us here. We also heard from Dr. Maggie Banky in that first segment, NBAF's Attending Veterinarian and Animal Resource Unit Lead. Uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Burton here uh, now. And, uh, you know, the last I heard, construction was scheduled to be finished up this spring. Uh, is it completed? Yes, it, it is, Brandon. Uh, the major construction projects have been completed uh, by the construction contractor. Uh, commissioning, which is the testing of MBAP individual critical systems and components, uh, that'll continue into the summer. Uh, and then as, as part of the commissioning process, MBAP will be also undergoing what's called ISFPT, and this is uh, acronym for Integrated System Function Performance Testing. So uh, commissioning, we've been testing the individual systems, uh, but the ISFPT is where multiple systems are brought down at the same time and then brought back up to test the overall interdependency and performance of all these integrated multiple systems at the same time, which is also critical to the safety and functionality of, of NBAP. So uh, this will be a, a next very critical step before the government takes over final ownership of NBAP. So uh, we, we continue to project that all of this testing will be completed uh, later on this summer. Um, as, as part of the commissioning and ISFPT process, 
USDA has been working really close with uh, the construction contractor and Department of Homeland Security because, uh, as you can guess, when they're testing those systems, you don't want people opening doors or leaving doors open uh, to affect the results of those tests. So uh, our USDA uh, workers have had to really work hard to schedule uh, access into some of these areas so that we can get in and get our work done to prepare for um, the operational, the final operational stand-up, uh, but yet not affect these systems. So at, at the end of ISFPT, uh, and commissioning USDA then will begin our own testing period, and that's a 60-day period of time called the endurance period that you may have heard us mention. And during that time span, the the subject matter experts from the construction contractors team will still be on campus, but our USDA facilities and and uh, animal resource unit and and all of the other units have their checklist of tests that they need to run through for their systems and do their own failure scenarios and, and everything prior to the government taking over final ownership. Uh, and then uh, integrated with and after the, our own USDA endurance period, then there's our scientific endurance period. So our scientists will have their own endurance period where they'll be doing the final physical setup of their laboratories and getting everything ready before the transfer of the science program. Uh, begins to actually physically occur. So af after all that, USDA, uh, our our goal line that we've been working towards now for so many years, uh, USDA will become fully responsibility responsible for the operations of the MBAP and and actually take ownership of the facility. So pretty exciting times. We're starting to see the the definite light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, as commissioning finishes up, I imagine there's probably some particular areas that USDA empl uh, employees are focusing on. Is that safe to say? That's very safe to say. Uh, and and timely, uh, June is National Safety Month. So with all of our personnel being, you know, back into the, temp the office space at the K-State uh, Foundation Office Park and then also bringing employees here into NBAP, our safety health and environmental manager uh, chief is organizing safety drills for both the MBAF campus and the office space over at the foundation. So uh, we're going to do a fire drill at some point this month, uh, tornado drills. So as the public's walking by or driving by on uh, Denison, if you happen to see people filing out of the building uh, at several different times during the month of June, uh, we're, we're just doing our drills and, and testing our safety measures and uh, and uh, getting everybody prepared to one more step of the operation. So it's, it's really critical that everybody knows those safety practices and we do our training now uh, before we, we become fully operational. So lots, lots going on from that perspective also. All right. Well, that's uh, good to know. And Katie, uh, we spoke a while back about employees starting to filter into the building. Does it seem like the building is more active these days? It sure does, Brandon. Um, you know, we did complete our phased return to the physical workplace last week. Uh, so I've definitely noticed, and I'm sure others driving by have noticed our parking lot filling up. Um, and it's great to just see more smiling faces around the building and uh, get to re-meet some people that we haven't seen for a couple of years. And then you know, really get to meet in person the folks that we've been working with over the past couple of years. So, you know, as of mid-May, MBAS has hired more than 85% of 
So about 247 of 288. And those are the employees that will support our operational unit. Um, and with that, we ended up onboarding more than 200 team members over the past couple of years during telework. So definitely a big feat. Um, but as you know, as we all move into our office spaces, we're, we're definitely focusing on building the best possible culture in this unique situation as we all come back and get to know each other on a more personal level as well. Um, we do have a few team members uh, from our science teams on board now, but the remaining positions, so more than 100, will join us over the next couple of years as we transition the USDA science mission from the Plum Island Animal Disease Center and stand up our other uh, science units as well. So you did get to hear from Dr. Chad Meir, the, research, the new research leader for the Foreign Arthropod-Born Animal Disease Research Unit, or FABADRU. I think that was in April. But we also just onboarded the new research leader. Um, her name is Dr. Lisa Hensley for the Zoonotic and Emerging Disease Research Unit, or ZEDRU. So hiring and onboarding definitely continues. Um, I, and I know I've mentioned this several times before, but MBAS will eventually have more than 400 full-time employees here. All right. And you mentioned ZEDRU. What will uh, this ZEDRU unit do? A great question, Brandon. So ZEDRU, or the Zoonotic and Emerging Disease Research Unit, uh, will focus on zoonotic pathogens. And so those are, those are diseases that normally exist in animals but can um, transfer to humans. And so uh, they'll focus on zoonotic pathogens, specifically in large livestock, uh, which is something we really can't do anywhere else in the United States right now, because this research requires the highest level of containment known as biosafety level four or BSL four. So that's, um, you know, this, this, this research unit is new to USDA and is standing up because of the capabilities and facility space that we'll have here at Bath in Manhattan. So these diseases include things like Crimean Congo, hemorrhagic fever virus, which is a tick-borne disease, as well as Nipah virus, which causes encephalitis and respiratory illness in pigs and people. So we definitely hope to be able to bring uh, Dr. Hensley on the show here in the coming months. All right. Lots of exciting things happening as uh, we, you know, get towards the end here of uh, construction and commissioning. And uh, it's just really neat to, to know that, uh, you know, all that hard work is starting to pay off uh, uh, years of hard work and the NBAF is really Kind of coming into its own, isn't it? It sure is, Brandon. We're all really excited to be a part of it. Yeah. All right. Well, we sure appreciate getting these uh, monthly updates. Uh, Katie and Dr. Burton, thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Benke, uh, certainly uh, thanks for being here on the program today. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon, Brandon. thank you as always. We're going to be talking Manhattan Special Olympics here for a few minutes. And uh, got a couple guests in the studio. Kim Schnee is the head coach, uh, one of three coaches on the uh, Manhattan Special Olympics uh team here. Good morning. Good morning. And she's joined here by Michael Carpenter. Good morning. Good morning. Pleasure to have you both in. And the reason we bring you in is I uh, got something exciting coming up. Uh, you guys are heading to Orlando. We are. Um, we're leaving Saturday morning. Um, we'll be there till the 12th. So the following Sunday, um, we have a 15 member team of um, unified volleyball and we are headed there for the USA Games, um, the Special Olympic USA Games. Um, we have it. Well, a unified team basically is that there's six athletes like Michael, and then there's six partners, um, would be like me if I could play volleyball. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we're headed there. Um, 
<laughs> there's lots of exciting things they have planned for us. We're going to a couple nights to Disney World. Um, we're playing at the ESPN Center. Um, so, yeah, very excited. Nice. Is this your first trip to Orlando, Michael? No. No? You've been there before. Okay. I've been there four times. <laughs> awesome. Are you, what are you looking most forward to uh, this week? Meeting new friends from the um, different countries. Awesome. So f- 15 of you qualified here. Um, how, does, how does that work here? Is there like a sponsorship or something? Um, no, we, we actually just put a bid in um, for the state of Kansas. And, um, you know, they take so many teams... Um, in our in in unified volleyball, there's ten teams throughout the nation, um, and and so we just put a bid in and we got chosen, um, and, and I think a lot of it is is because you know we're <laughs> we're we're very up and coming. Um, we're we're a great team, I think. Um, we've been practicing two times a week since last June. Um, I think we're ready. <laughs> I hope we're ready. Um, the first game we play on Monday is a divisioning round, and we play um, Alabama. And then in the afternoon, we play Ohio. And then after that, we'll play on Tuesday and Wednesday, and then Thursday will be a pool play. So we'll see how all that goes. Okay. So this is June 4th through the 12th uh, for the national games. And uh, I understand there's going to be a, a send-off here this weekend. There is. Um, it's going to be at 8 o'clock. We're leaving from the bus barn. Um, on Casement Road, um, we're taking a school bus to the um, uh, to the airport, to Kansas City Airport, and then we'll get on there, and yeah, it'll be fun. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about playing volleyball, Michael. Uh, how did you get involved, and and uh, how often do you play? Um, I got involved from Coach Cam, and I play volleyball on Sundays and Thursdays, and mostly every weekend. You have a lot of friends that uh, play with you. Yes, sir. Great. What what have uh, what has this taught you uh, in getting to play here? What what have you learned? I guess. I learned that volleyball is a very hard sport. Yeah, agreed. I, I've played a little volleyball when I was younger, uh, and it's it's not it's not an easy sport. There's certain you got to run a lot. Oh yeah. And uh, what's your favorite position to play? Do you have a favorite? I'm a setter and an outside hitter. Okay. How tall are you? Do you? Six foot. Okay. So you got some good height on you there. So you can be a good setter. Uh, as far as uh, some of the, the teammates here, you, pretty mixed. Are we uh, males and females? Uh, we have, I'm, I'm trying to think, my gosh. Um, we have six, we have six uh, females and six males. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Well, this is a lot of fun, uh, and again, uh, so there'll be a, a nice little flight to Orlando, and uh, weather should be good. Uh, yeah, yeah. It looks like it looks like it might be rainy next week, but we'll be inside, so it won't affect us. Cool. Um, is there anything else so you want to make sure to let people know? Um, I don't know. Just actually, the opening ceremonies are are going to be on ABC. Ooh, okay. Yeah, um, Sunday at. Um, I gotta, th- I gotta think. I think I've got it pulled up here. Yeah. Uh, so it'll it's be like eleven little... to two. That's right. Um, on ABC, and then the rest of the week. Well, on on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, anyway. Um, it, it'll be on in the afternoon or towards the evening on ESPN two. 
you know, so you can look and who knows if we'll be if we'll be highlighted, but that would be fun if we were. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so, um, and you mentioned uh, these are all folks from Manhattan, right? Um, yeah, that actually we have everybody but three of of our members are Manhattan High graduates, which I think is kind of cool. Um, we have one coach or one partner that lives in Wamigo and uh, an athlete that lives in Westmoreland. But all the rest live in Manhattan. So. Okay. So yeah. That'll be pretty uh, good incentive for folks to check that out on ABC and ESPN. In the opening ceremony, 11 uh, to 2 on uh, Sunday, the, the 5th, and then yeah. the competitions begin on the 7th. Well, what a neat opportunity here. Well, good luck to you, Michael. Hope you have a good competition. Thank you. And, and good luck, Kim. Uh, how I want to just mention real quick, how can people get involved with Special Olympics if they want to help donate or other ways to get involved? Um, the best way to contact us probably is through our Facebook page, um, which is Manhattan Special Olympics. Um, and we're, we're pretty good about getting back with people. Um, actually, just recently, I've had like three different people reach out and want to get their kids involved and stuff. So um, when we get back from Orlando, um, we'll start some activities up um, through the summer. Right. You know, and then we'll start with volleyball again in the fall, and we do basketball and track. Wonderful. Troy, well, this might be the best sports news we've had all week. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, uh, well, you have to remember, I do like the Avalanche. So, you okay. know, <laughs> that, that win. Fan. <laughs> the, you know, the Royals have been down. To yeah. Bring yeah. us down. Oh, good luck so. to you guys, though. Have a great trip out to Orlando this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. And we're back on In Focus, News Radio KMAN, and our uh, live guest here joining us now on uh, News Radio KMAN's In Focus with uh, General Perry Wiggins, Executive Director of the Governor's Military Council. Good morning, sir. Morning, Brandon. Thank you for having me this morning. You bet. Uh, Pleasure to talk to you, and uh, glad we could get you in. It sounds like you're a busy man today. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a beautiful day outside. Unfortunately, I'm sequestered to meetings inside. Well, that that that'll happen sometimes. So, well, glad we could get you on here, and uh, I, I know uh, it's always good to get an update here from you as far as uh, things going on here at Fort Riley and in the military. Uh, we had, of course, Memorial Day this past week, and I, I imagine you took part in some of those activities. Uh, I did. My wife and I attended the uh, a nice peaceful ceremony out at uh, Fort Riley uh, Cemetery. Uh, Fort Riley puts on a great uh, ceremony every year in honor of our fallen, and and uh, so it's uh, it's nice to go out there and and really uh, get reconnected uh, with some families that uh, I know personally have lost uh, uh, their service member and given the ultimate sacrifice, and um, and it was uh, it was a it was a nice event. Oh, absolutely, and uh, I think we had Sam Henney out there from our news department, and uh, he, he uh, would reiterate those comments. It was a great ceremony that they had out there. Um, of course, folks uh, should know that uh, Memorial Day can be actually uh, honored throughout the year when remembering our uh, fallen soldiers, and I think it's really neat that uh, what's going on in Topeka uh, at the Capitol building there with the uh, Gold Star Memorial. Uh, I know you had a hand in... Uh, getting that project going well i i did i'd like i had a small part i think uh senator long and and manhattan's own representative mike dodson really 
carried the football on it. Legislation got passed. It's uh, Senate Bill 330, and the governor signed it into law that we would establish a monument on the statehouse grounds. And, and the monument's dedicated to the families uh, of, of really uh, our fallen. And uh, I think it's something that the nation and our state uh, needs to remember that uh, we have families out there in and among us uh, that have lost a service member uh, in defense of this nation. I haven't been to the Capitol in a while. Is that installed now, or is it in the process? No, it's in the process. The law just got established. Uh, we're starting, uh, of course, to take donations. As, uh, as the law states, uh, we, we will do this project with, uh, with private donations, you know, not from any governmental funds. Uh, so we're in the process now of, of doing the donation piece, and we plan on having the monument established uh uh, hopefully late summer, uh, an ideal date would be 25 September of this year, uh, since that's Gold Star Mother's uh, Day. Okay, we'll be looking forward to that. And if people want to donate out, where's where's a good location to get information on that? Do you know? Yep, I can uh, I can get that to you. Um, but we have a, a fund established uh, through the Kansas State uh, Foundation. Um Dr. Art DeGroat, uh, who has uh, been a huge uh, friend of our military here in the state, uh, has helped us out, and we've got a fund established where if those who are interested uh, reach out, we can, we can provide them the information and the form where they can provide a donation or gift to the Gold Star Memorial. Okay. Good enough. Uh, well, uh, General, what else is uh, on your mind? What, what else are you working on right now? Well, one of the things that uh, we're doing out here is uh, working quality of life things. We're continuing to tackle uh, the reciprocity. You know, the state uh, passed legislation on reciprocity uh, for spouses, and uh, we're continuing to refine to make sure that we incorporate uh, all of the occupational specialties out there to have licensures and skills to make sure that we're keeping track of that. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is uh, that we recently here in the state passed legislation that. Uh, recognizes and takes federal impact aid out of the equation, uh, equalization formula here in the state. And that does that, uh, bodes very well in the eyes of the Department of Defense as it looks as Kansas taking care of military-connected students here in the state. All right. The reciprocity, the reciprocity thing is uh, a real key piece because that uh, really, I know uh, whenever folks get transferred in, that uh, can sometimes be a burden because uh, not every state law or requirement uh, translates from state to state. You move from Arizona to Kansas, uh, it may be different. Right. You know, more and more families are dual-income families now. Uh, both uh, the husband and the, and, you know, or the spouses work, and so it, it creates some dynamics when you have a spouse that's in the military and he moves periodically. Uh, the, the spouse has an issue because of stability. In a lot of cases, they don't travel with the military member, which creates its own issues for families. Um, but they, they can't because they can't transfer to that state with the credentialing or the licenses that they need. And so the state of Kansas passing this legislation is significant uh, because we not only recruit uh, service members, we recruit their spouses back in. And, and they're a huge part of our communities. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're talking with uh, General Perry Wiggins here from the uh, Governor's Military Council, where he serves as the uh, executive director. Uh, as far as there's been a lot of transitioning taking place at uh, Fort Riley as of late. I know we got a new commanding general named and, and some other things going on. Uh, this is a real busy time, it seems like, for Fort Riley. Well, it, it certainly is. And, you know, they've been involved in the European theater for the past several years. But now with the environment, especially with the, the things that transpired in, in the Ukraine, uh, the 1st Infantry Division has the entire division headquarters in Europe now. Uh, they just had a ceremony. General Myers, who took over for General D.A. Sims, uh, he cased the colors, which is Basically, they put uh, they roll the colors up. They put a cover on it that designates that the that the division's in deployment. They depart their home station uh, installations like Fort Riley, and then they go into theater. They have an uncasing ceremony, which basically signifies that the division is in place for deployed. And so that happened uh, last week, as a matter of fact, and. General Myers took command of the division, and in a short period, uh, he was on an airplane and uh, feet down in Europe. Wow, fascinating. I mean, you know, and I know the situation in Ukraine has been ongoing here, I think, since February now, if I remember right. And you know, it's been a little overshadowed in the national news here as of late. Uh, we haven't heard a lot on it. Uh, what What's the latest that you've heard as far as progress that's being made uh, at the military level? Well, I think one of the things that I would highlight is, you know, we're now starting to release uh, some uh, technology to the Ukrainians that I think will help them in their fight um, against the, the Russians. The, the thing that I think the American public needs to take away from this particular event is they need to take pride in their military, uh, specifically here in the United States, and how we uh, prosecute a, a war. We go to great lengths to make sure that we respect life and protect civilian populations and try to reduce the amount of destruction uh, and impact on the society. Whereas the Russians, if you look how they're prosecuting war, they are raising entire cities to the ground. Indiscriminate killing of civilians. Uh, I, I am surprised that we don't have more of an outcry from our media uh, on what the Russians are doing and really uh, hammering them and holding them accountable for these atrocities. Yeah, well, yeah, it's well said. And obviously, uh, the, we continue to hope and pray that uh, things will get resolved over there at some point. Um, what about uh, what the situation in Afghanistan? I know that was kind of left... Uh, a little bit unsettled in in August of last year. Have, have you learned anything more on that uh, uh, situation? Well, you know, I, I, I will tell you, um, we're all concerned specifically because that seems to be a petri dish for the creation of terrorist organizations that, uh, you know, that tend to attack our very ways of life. Uh, and so, we're always concerned about those things regenerating. And, of course, the Taliban's not a very good uh, government, uh, as you can see, and, and having issues and problems. And, unfortunately, the people, the Afghan people, are the ones that are paying the price. Um, so I, I don't think you're going to see stability in that region for many, many years. And, unfortunately, 
like I said, the people that pay the price are the citizens of Afghanistan. Yeah, my my wife and I have gotten to know a, a former citizen of Afghanistan who uh, came over here as part of the uh, MART team, and uh, you know it's they're great people. They they helped. Uh, they were allies here to uh, our military folks and uh, re- reestablishing their lives here in uh, the Manhattan area. And it's uh, we're glad to have them here because it's they're a great part of our community. No, that's true, and I tell you, I'm absolutely impressed and thankful for the citizens of Manhattan and, and the surrounding communities that really wrap their arms around uh, our new citizens, because I, I will tell you, uh, once again, the Afghan people, they're great people. Um, it's just unfortunate that there was a, an organization that that uh, didn't have, once again, any respect for lives, and... Uh, we, we truly, as a military, owe a great debt to our allies, and the Afghan uh, military were, were our allies and saved a number of lives. So we're thankful. Yep, absolutely. And uh, we continue to thank our military and uh, all, all that they do to protect our country. Of course, next time we talk to you here, it'll be uh, another patriotic holiday. I, I kind of like this time of year because there's a lot of renewed sense of patriotism here during the summer. You got Memorial Day, then the 4th of July. Uh, of course, uh, we remember D-Day is coming up here in just a couple days and uh, just all, all all good reasons to, uh, you know, respect the flag and, and uh, remember, you know, just how valuable freedom is. No, I agree, Brandon. You know, I, I had a tendency, I was working on this Gold Star Memorial. I was telling somebody, uh, I was approached by a gentleman uh, who was about my age. Uh, and I, I, he goes, I'm really thankful that you're doing this Gold Star Memorial. And I said, well, I appreciate that you lose a son in combat. And uh, he goes, oh, no, no. And he said, my father was shot down in Vietnam when I was eight months old. Um, you know, for me, I, I, it, was a, it was an epiphany because the bottom line is I correlate Gold Star families as being, you know, young Afghan, Iraqi fallen soldiers. And when, in fact, we probably have more Gold Star families out there than, than we imagine uh, from World War II uh, and Korea and Vietnam. And so I think, uh, you know, we can learn a lot through these commemorations, whether it's D-Day or whether it's Fourth of July that our freedom comes at a cost, and uh, and we are the greatest nation on this planet because we have great Americans that stand on point every day to protect those freedoms. Well, General Wiggins, we appreciate the time. I know it's a little limited here this morning, but uh, always good to talk to you. Yeah, my apologies, Brandon. I look forward to the next time. Sounds good. Uh, and you no need to apologize. Seriously, we always appreciate getting the chance. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we'll be talking with Karen Hibbert and John Job, CVB and uh, K-State Research and Extension. Dr. Timothy Schaefer are going to join us as well from Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy.